All right, if you're not getting those and you're participating in the community Bible experience, you need to get signed up so you're getting those. Those are actually quite helpful. Uh, They come daily in short versions, and then there's the long version that comes regularly. If you pick up the book, it's right there on the front of the book, the website to go to, and we have more books now. So if you don't have one, grab one in the parlor, but don't take this one because it's mine. I need it. We're, we're going to focus some effort. If, you're not, if you haven't been participating in the community Bible experience, just so you know, I'm going to be preaching from that experience, but that doesn't mean you have to be participating to understand what's going on. We're going to be preaching Scripture uh, over these next few weeks. And I know we're already two weeks into this thing, so it feels like we're behind the curve maybe for the preaching. Um, so what I'm going to do today is, is focus a little bit on what you might have read, just drilling down on one area. And, and then we'll focus in the future weeks kind of on what might be coming up, areas that you might want to look at or focus on or that might come to your attention. But I want to point something out first today before we kind of drill in on one area and just talk about reading in general and reading Scripture. There's, there's a study that was done well over 50 years ago that talked about, it was a sociological study that, that looked at when Scripture is translated into the language of a people, what happens. And, and you have to notice, I said, into the language of a people. It's not just a person that gets Scripture, but a people group. When they get the Scripture in their language, they tend to come to the same conclusions as other people who have had Scripture translated into their language. The main points stand out when a people read it. They come to the same conclusions. They get the picture. They might see details that are different, culture to culture, people to people, but the main ideas just stand out of Scripture. They come out when we read it together. And that's exactly what we're doing. That's the focus of this community Bible experience over eight weeks, to not just read it as individuals. That's a good thing. But to read it together, to gather on Sundays and and hear the word proclaimed, and to gather together in small groups and study it together. Different things happen when we read Scripture that way. And as I was looking at at the community Bible experience material that we get um, to kind of plan the experience and all that, it points out uh, from a Barna study recently that most people say they attend church in order to understand the Bible. That statistic was new to me, but I'm not surprised by it. I don't know if that's why you're here today or why you keep coming. I know the community matters. A lot of us have been here for a long time, and that's an important part. But understanding the Bible is actually a key component of why people keep showing up. And it's interesting. Culture to culture, you drop Scripture into a culture, translate it for a people. People are intrigued. They're drawn in to what it has to say. What are we intrigued by? What, what is it that we hope will happen when we open up God's Word and study it together. I don't promise to unlock all of those for you, but I do want to begin with something that Scripture says about digging in from Psalm 1. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, proclaims at the beginning of this great prayer book, it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. There's a promise there that as we draw into God's revelation to us, a gift that God has given to us of his word, something's going to happen. 
that just like a tree that's standing there nourished by streams can go through all kinds of weather conditions, it's still connected to the source. It may be frozen on a snowy day, wet on a rainy day, hot on a hot day, but it's connected to the source, no matter what's going on around it. And when it says prosper, just we'll hear that language in a couple places today, that doesn't mean three-car garage and a boat. It means we're going to be connected to the source who gives us life. We're going to recognize that. We're going to live it out to its fullest. That's what it means. As we open up God's word together as his people, I know we're two weeks into this for the community Bible experience. You're doing a blessed thing. That's the long and short of it. To delight in God's word is a blessed thing. And it won't come back empty on you. I've had a lot of good examples in my life of people uh, who have, I think, engaged with Scripture well, and it's changed them. I I was blessed with parents and grandparents who modeled this for me and and lots of family members. But more recently in life, I was thinking about some people who have modeled the importance of Scripture to me and just digging in and making it a discipline. Uh, They're both actually, uh, they both immigrated to this country. One... Um, doesn't even have the Old Testament in his native language. Still not translated for his native language. Only the New Testament is. So he reads the, the Old Testament in English or in a, a related language to his. But he regrets years of, of kind of neglect. But he's also suffered for his faith. He's suffered tremendously because he's a, a Christian. He's not uh, gotten jobs. He's had to leave certain parts of the world even because of his faith. He was not accepted as being a Christian. But everywhere he went, no matter what the meeting was, no matter what was going on, he always carried the Bible with him in one way or another. He always was reading it every night, pouring over it, so that it would, in fact, pour over him and he would be changed. The other person I think of uh, who came into my life more recently, within the last five or six years, uh, I used to pick up, uh, pick him up at the last church, actually, for a Five, at 5.45 in the morning once a week for a Bible study. That's early. Um, but we would, we'd go to this Bible study together, and he was uh, approaching 80 at the time I was picking him up. And he certainly had regret over life where he was not in Christ, where he had not recognized God's goodness to him. It wasn't a debaucherous life. It wasn't a sin-filled life. But it was a life where he felt he neglected very clearly that most important relationship with God. And he, everywhere he went, he had scripture in his own language. He carried it with him, poured over it. And the wisdom that came out of him, simply because he engaged with it, the life change that occurred in him simply because he engaged with it was a testimony to me. For both of these friends of mine, scripture was not just a book, it was a treasured possession. It was life-giving to them. And scripture should be like that for us. Like an old dear friend who you want to spend as much time with as possible, like a treasured possession, something as essential to our existence as air. Without it, we would choke. Without it, we would falter. We read the testimony of Scripture about itself in numerous places. Uh, If you look at the book of Joshua, when Joshua is taking over as leader of Israel and is about to go into the promised land, God speaks to him and he says, don't let this word of the law, or book of the law, depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. 
And, and in the midst of that, that prosperous and successful, let's just recognize that's, again, not the three-car garage idea. God's going to be there as the source. Because right before and right after that, God says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. What you're going to do is really tough, but I'm with you. Wherever you go, stay connected. Stay with me. In Isaiah 55, uh, God delivers a word uh, to the people through Isaiah, and he says, just like snow and rain fall to the ground, and they're not going to go back up to the air without nourishing, without bringing things to fruit and to bud and to flower, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. He says, it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purposes for which I sent it. We read in Timothy, Paul's words to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's going to do something within us. And it has the power to do that. Hebrews testifies, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's going to do something when we engage with God's word. Something will happen. And so this week we watched, as you were reading Luke, Acts, and First and Second Thessalonians over the last couple weeks, actually, you can see as the word of God takes root and the good news of Jesus Christ carries on throughout the ancient world. In this case, it was the Roman Empire is where it all starts and where it all travels. And I want to focus in today on Acts 17. If you're following along, that's where you can follow along this morning. And I'm just going to pick out a couple of notes broadly that I saw this week that that we can focus on this area and then broaden out. So what happens, without recapping all of Acts, because you guys read it this week, or many of you did, Paul goes on three missionary journeys. Uh, The first one he goes on with Barnabas. Uh, And after that missionary journey, the the world opens up to the Gentiles, really. So the non-Jewish crowd now. The Gentiles start coming to Christ. But the early church kind of grapples with, well, who's in and who's out? And how do we determine who's in and who's out? What do we keep of the old law? Uh, And and what's essential, basically? And and what's under the surface that'll just keep unity but is not essential? And so they grapple with that at the, the council in Jerusalem. They send out a great... The great church letter that's super short. I wish I could write like that. And they send it out to the church and say, okay, this should be encouraging. And then Paul is going to go back out and kind of reconnect with some of those churches. He and Barnabas part ways. So he goes with Silas um, and goes out, but he's blocked. And we heard that in Acts 16 this morning. Blocked from going where he wants to go. And he has this vision uh, of somebody in, in uh, Macedonia. So I'll read that to you. You heard it, but I'll just read uh, verse 9 of chapter 16. They're blocked, and it says, During the night Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. This, incidentally, when scholars look back, they say this is when the gospel actually starts going to Europe. That's the direction that it's going and goes from there. So God's giving them this word. Basically, this vision comes, help. We need help in Macedonia. This looks like it's going to be a slam dunk, right? Super easy. Paul will go in. Everybody's going to be receptive to the word of God because they got this word from the Lord, right? We know how this works. It doesn't work quite so simply. The map is up here because some of you like this. Uh, they, They just follow this route through Macedonia, the Ignatian Way. They hit Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Paul ends up getting kind of pushed out of all of them along the way and ends up down in what's Achaia, but modern-day Greece uh, in the city of of Athens, all in chapters 16 and 17 of Acts. 
It's pretty rapid pace. And you see that there are times when there's great progress that's made and great trouble comes. So we heard this morning in Acts 16, Paul starts this journey into Macedonia by going into Philippi. And he has success initially with Lydia. She comes to Christ and some from her household and some other women come to know the Lord. But right after that, Paul ends up having trouble in Philippi and gets thrown in jail. Paul and Silas do. But then he ends up converting the jailer and his family in a remarkable uh, experience where they're singing in jail, the doors are open, and uh, he, he is taken to the jailer's home where he's tended to. But they get booted out of town pretty quickly and move on to Thessalonica. And so that's where we'll pick up our story right now. I'm going to read Acts 17, 1 through 9. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And you'll notice this pattern, both in Acts uh, 16 and Acts 17. They don't stop everywhere and, and spend a lot of time there. They seem to hit major population centers, especially where there's a synagogue. That seems to be their entry point. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. So let's stop and recognize that this is not every Jew in the city. This is just a faction of Jews in the city. And who are they gathering? They're not gathering other Jews of like mind. They're gathering people who would be in the Gentile category who probably are uh, lying in alleys or, or the criminal or whatever it is, people who are, who are ready for a riot at any point in time. That's what it's pointing to. They rushed to Jason's house in church of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world, by that they mean the Roman world, that's what it indicates, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So what we've got going on here in the whole story, Paul comes to Thessalonica. He's going to reason through things with the synagogue. And you catch the language that he uses. He reasons, he explains, he proves, he proclaims this message. Three Sabbaths, it takes a while. People will often put uh, Thessalonica uh, next to the next town he goes to, Berea, and they'll say, well, look at the Bereans. They were wonderful. They were all open-hearted towards this, and the Thessalonians were were much more hard-hearted towards this. I don't think it's quite that simple. Um, It doesn't say everybody in Berea Berea accepted the word because they were open-hearted. They just were ready to listen. It was a hard-fought battle in Thessalonica, but if I think of some people in my own life or that I know who... Uh, know of who have really worked through their faith and have had to work through it hard to get to belief, they have a strong faith, don't they? So let's not judge too harshly on what the process was to get them there, but that they got there. That's actually very important. 
And what you end up having in this community, as in so many of this, this Macedonian area, are competing worldviews. Uh, Paul is coming in, and he's talking to the Jewish crowd primarily, but there are also people sitting around the edges who kind of know the story, who are interested, who just never quite committed to fully becoming Jewish. And now he's saying the Messiah is here, and some of them are recognizing that. But the ones that aren't, this faction that says, no way, not in our town, they go and instead of contending with Paul, look at what they do. Let's get some other people and cause a riot. We're not going to contend with the argument. We just don't like what he's doing. We're going to reject it wholesale and, and find some other argument that's going to work in our favor so he'll get out of here. That's what they're trying to do. And they use Macedonia uh, and their, their sort of spirit of the area against Paul and Silas. It was an independent area within the Roman Empire. It's the land of Alexander the Great, for goodness sakes. They have a lot of pride. They were independent before they were taken over by the Roman Empire. Then they eventually kind of gained this sense of sort of semi-independence as a state again within the Roman Empire. They get these city officials like you read here. That was a big deal for them. They could mint their own coins. Uh, They were trusted actually by the Roman Empire as these guys are in, these guys are good. We can give them a pretty long leash. So they're afraid of anything that's going to threaten that. Aside from that, along the way, what they also have is that they they bought into the cult of the emperor. Emperor worship was a big thing for them, which also got them good stock with the Roman Empire because they're like, well, they're pretty loyal people to us. Religion and politics clearly meet in the ancient world in a whole lot of ways. If you can control the people with something like the, the cult of the emperor, you're doing well. If they're, if they're that uh, allied with the emperor, then, then they'll be under control. And so what these, uh, these crowds do is they end up, uh, this Jewish faction does, is they end up doing the two biggest things that could threaten the Roman Empire. One, they cause a riot. You lose control. This is bad news. The Romans were notorious for squashing these down fast. And two, basically treason. They're saying there's another king. They're trying to raise these things up as as major issues. And of course, the city officials who want to hold on to this independence are going to be very upset by all that's going on. But these aren't the real arguments, even though the king part is an important component. But what's interesting, you can see the reaction then. When the gospel comes to Thessalonica, when it comes to Macedonia in general, some people respond and they say, okay, I accept this message. I will take it and all that comes with it. And some people won't even contend with it. They'll say, no way. I'm not, it's getting close to the door. It's getting too close to home. Done. I'm going to block this thing out. I'm not even going to listen to what's there. And, and it begs the question in our own life, what happens when uh, the gospel comes to the doorstep? What do we do with it at that point? Do we let it in and let it do its work within us? Or do we make up some arguments and say, no way, I'm not even going to contend with it. I'm not even going to listen to it. What do we do? We see both at play. I want to note a couple things that I see as the gospel spreads like this in the book of Acts especially. And we'll pick out one little part from 1 Thessalonians in a moment. The first thing I see is that good news spreads. The good news spreads. People want to hear good news. Paul didn't stop in every town to preach. We pointed this out. But what he points out is, because you guys are going to testify. When I stop in Thessalonica, something's going to happen, and then you're going to tell other people. He doesn't have to do all the work. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to proclaim the good news, and other people that hear it, it's contagious. 
If we're really changed from the inside out, we're going to want to tell other people. And the good news spreads. And Paul testifies to this when he writes to the Thessalonians. He's been kicked out of town. He can't come back. In fact, when it says that, that they made Jason and his friends post bond, uh, what's really going on there is, is the, the price was steep. They're saying, don't let Paul and Silas ever come back here or else, Jason, or else things are going to be even worse for you than this. That's what's going on. In 1 Thessalonians, though, Paul testifies to the faith that was left behind. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. You, people know it because it was brought to you, and now it's spreading throughout the region. He didn't need to go everywhere because it was going to spread. It's naturally contagious. It spreads as it's lived and experienced among a people. There's a cute little um, kind of part of the show, the late night show with Jimmy Fallon that Stephanie and I have seen recently where it's, they go to newscasters across the country and they say, I've got good news and good news. It's, it's cute. You know, I've got good news. Uh, it's going to be a sunny day and you're going to get a box of kittens in the mail or something like that. It's, it's all just totally a fluff piece, but it's funny. But it, it drives home the point, as so many things like that do, that we like good news. Somebody comes to you and says, I've got good news and bad news. We're a little apprehensive about half of that, aren't we? You don't want to hear that from your doctor or your mechanic. What you want to hear is, I've got good news and good news, right? That's all you want to hear. People like good news. We know this. We know that we like good news. And here you have the good news. And I know sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking that people won't want to hear this good news. It's too easy to fall into that trap. But if the Holy Spirit is really at work in the world, and I believe that, I hope you do too, if the Holy Spirit's really at work in the world, that means there are receptive hearts all around us. The good news is contagious, and there's always somebody that's willing to listen and receive it. We've got to have our ears and eyes open to those opportunities. Second, people are changed but especially communities are changed by the good news. You see both happening, individuals and communities. It changes how we operate in the world, how we're even going to view the world as, a, as an individual and as a people group. Paul, in the ancient world that, that he's writing in and living in and delivering the good news in, is a pluralistic world and it's a syncretistic world. I'll define both of those. We live in the same kind of a world. It's not exactly the Roman Empire, but we live in a pluralistic society. One where there are a lot of different religions all on the table, treated as, as equally. You can choose whichever one you want from the buffet of religions. They're all right there. Uh, this is where the coexist bumper sticker works out, right? They're all there. So you can do something with them. Uh, but secondly, it was a syncretistic culture then and now, which is to say that's when you start pulling together competing worldviews into one religious system. So somebody might uh, in that believe uh, in uh, the sovereignty of God and predestination and karma at the same time or something like that and pull those both uh, together. You have this operating in, in, on display in Philippi. When Paul walks through Philippi, and, and we uh, could see that this morning, uh, where he's walking through the town. Actually, we stopped short of that, but let me tell you the story. They're walking through the town, um, and there's this slave girl that's calling out behind them. These guys are servants of the Most High God. She's demon-possessed. 
Paul's grieved by the matter when he finally casts out the demon out of her. She's walking behind them to discredit, essentially, the gospel. And it's, it's a sad case altogether because she's supposed to be a fortune teller. That's how she makes money for her masters. She doesn't get it. Her masters do. And she's walking through town uh, like this and functioning probably for uh, the cult of Apollos, the god Apollos. You've also got the cult of the emperor, like we talked about going on. And Paul's living in a world where people could kind of grasp onto whichever one of those they want. Hey, I want my fortune told today. I'll go to the slave girl today the, uh, for Apollos. And then tomorrow I'll give something to the emperor. But what happens when people are changed and they recognize that uh, the claims that Paul's making through the good news of Jesus Christ is that you can't have it both ways. You can't just decide to worship all the different gods that you want and sacrifice to all of them to sort of hedge your bets. In fact, early on in the Christian church, in the sort of especially the post-New Testament period, we find that uh, there was a test of faith that was sometimes given to Christians in certain parts of the empire to make sure they were loyal to the empire and not Christians. So they, they'd have to make the confession, Caesar is Lord. Well, that sounds a lot like something else, doesn't it? Caesar is Christos instead of Jesus is Lord. And Christians realized and, and understood very quickly Both of those can't be true. It's either one or it's either the other. And they suffered when they didn't make the confession, sometimes to the point of their life. They lived in a world where they had to make choices. They couldn't just merge together all the faiths and hold them together. And we still live in that world. I remember talking to a neighbor years ago, uh, trying to bring her to Christ, and and she had the question, why can't I just put the best pieces of all the religions together? I like some of the different things out there. We get this in sort of the all roads lead to the same place idea that's put out there. We still live in this world. And even in the Christian circles, people would call it universalism. No matter where you are, eventually God will work it all out when you die and it'll all be okay. It doesn't matter if you're a total, uh, totally evil in your life, God will figure it out. But that's just not how it works. And we fall into it sometimes even in, in the Christian world. I fall into this too. Sort of the idea of, of uh, when it comes to telling others about the good news, uh, if I'm supposed to tell my neighbors, probably the neighbor on the other side will do it. Right? We have this sort of mentality. But we have to realize that we're changed within this. And there's a certain way we have to operate within the world. And there are certain requirements that come with this. And we can't make sort of those competing claims of, of uh, the world out there is Lord, or there are other gods out there, or there are other things that, that command us. And even Paul, when he writes to First Thess- the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians, he says, you have to understand what the ramifications are of the commitment you've made. It means something on how you operate in the world, that the good news has to take root in you. And he says, avoid things then. You have to avoid things like sexual immorality, like lust. Don't take advantage of each other. Be pure, live a holy life. This is how we reflect the good news to those around us. He says, don't, uh, uh, he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. If we translate that into our, our day and age, living in a similar cultural context, I think it be, means things like don't sleep around. Don't get a running start on your marriage. Hate what it, or it means. Uh, don't consume junk. Don't try and justify the things that we watch and consume and read that we ought not to. It means uh, don't get entertainment from suffering and of others. I, I can be con- uh, guilty of that by consuming too much of the news without any real reason. It means don't consume all that culture has to offer you just because culture offers it to you. We have to be savvy shoppers if we're really changed by the gospel as individuals and as a people. The accusation against 
Paul and Silas is that they're turning the world upside down. Some of your translations have it that uh, abruptly. God's word should turn your world upside down. Absolutely should. It should remake you as you enter in. And the final thing I want to say is that God blesses those who welcome his good news. God blesses those who welcome it. And what I appreciate about the Thessalonian testimony of faith is that you can test it and try it and contend with it and weigh it out and ask all these questions about the faith. The issue is just not to outright reject it. Because that's what happens. Some people just say, no way. I want nothing to do with this. But some people say, let me weigh it out. Let me, it takes three Sabbaths. That's okay. But some of them then come to know the Lord. And I know I, I found through this, both the community Bible experience and just in general, my devotional reading over the years, as I draw close and closer to God's word to us through scripture, it challenges who I am. At every turn, it challenges me. And we're sitting in our small group, and sometimes people ask the question, you know, Pastor, what do you think about this? And I'll just sometimes say, I don't know, because I don't. I don't know all the answers. I have to research things, too, sometimes. Sometimes Scripture makes me uncomfortable. It, it unsettles me. Sometimes uh, it, it encourages me, but it always draws me in. Every time. I never walk away dissatisfied. Maybe unsettled, but not dissatisfied. I never walk away thinking that God doesn't love me and want to make me more like his son, Jesus Christ. The good news blesses us. It changes us. And as I read scripture and pursue it more and more, it becomes like a dear old friend. I have a hard time existing without it. And when I step away for too long, I notice the difference. Delight in God's word. Delight in God's word and be blessed with God's best. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Let it shape you. God's investment to, in you through his word will not return void. Something will happen as you delight in God's word, and it's going to be good. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you cared enough to give us the gift of yourself both in your word, you reveal who you are so that we're not left wondering, so that we're not left trying to figure it out and grasping at straws, but we get an idea of who you are and what you would ask of us that we would draw close. And beyond that, you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, who not only redeemed us, but showed us the way forward, what it looks like in real tangible terms to follow you. What your glory looks like and what it looks like when we reflect that glory to those around us. And Father, Father, for those of us who feel far this morning, draw us in. Give us the words from the pages of Scripture that would draw us into your presence, that would change us, that would put enough uh, gravel in our shoe that as we walk, we just have to keep thinking and dwelling on those things that make us uncomfortable, but continue to draw us towards you. And God bless us in the process we know that doesn't mean just monetary or, or health and wealth or any of that, but it means that we're going to be connected with the source, just like we read in Proverbs 1, that we're going to be like a tree planted near streams. No matter what comes at us in this world, we will be connected to the source of all life. We'll bear fruit in season. And even though there are days when the world tells us we, we are in want 
and in need, we recognize that our definition of what we need comes from you, not from anyone else. God, help us find our sufficiency and our all in what you provide and to see blessing that way. And may we be a blessing to you as we are connected to you, our source. We pray this in your name. Amen.